I hear you. Well, I'm going to try, like, my original recording thing is not working, so I'm going to try to record with this and see if I can use it. But if I can't, you know, oh, well, I tried. All right, so we've been talking about work motivation, Chapter 14, and like I said, we are crazy close to the end of the semester. And in my other class, there's only 15 chapters, so after this week, we just got one chapter. In this class, we do have two more chapters, but still so very close to the end. Uh, I really like this chapter. This is also a more involved chapter because there's a lot of facets to motivation. And we started out talking out on Monday about some of those aspects. And I mentioned uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which is pretty well known and well regarded as a good motivation theory. You know, And we say these are theories because theories are not proven yet. They're not laws, scientific laws. But they're, you know, the more evidence we collect over time, the more it strengthens the possibility that theory is, is correct. So, um, but things in the psychological realm are almost impossible to, to prove for them to become laws, you know, because it's, uh, even if you're 99.999 to the, you know, 48th decimal point, uh, certain that this is correct, uh, it's still, you know, there is that shadow of a doubt that it could be, Incorrect. So we just maintain it as a theory. But I think over time, at least everything that I've studied with motivation, uh, I think Maslow is a good, it's a good foundational uh, motivation theory. And so I'm going to kind of recap a little bit to what we talked about on Monday and kind of get us back to where we uh, left off. And so we talked about determinants of performance. And we said you take the individual, you take the situation, the individual. Uh, we're talking about ability, motivation, uh, their accurate role in perceptions, and then the situation is the environment they're in. And so if you take a person, if you take 10 people and put them in a certain environment and ask them to perform, they're going to react differently. They're going to have different outcomes, different levels of performance based on their ability, based on the type of environment you put them in, based on the own individual motivation. If you've got somebody that's highly capable, but they've lost their motivation, they've lost their uh, drive, so to speak, um, that's really is going to hinder them from performing. Um, there is, I'm glad I mentioned that word drive. There's a great book on motivation. If you ever want to read just one book about motivation, it's called Drive by Daniel Pink. Really, really good. Daniel Pink is a guy who went to, I believe, Yale Law School. He only practiced law for like a year or two. He wasn't, he didn't like law after he went to Yale. And so he decided to become an author and motivational speaker. I know those guys don't like that term, motivational speaker, but that's basically what he does. But he went in and studied motivation very deeply. And he wrote a book called Drive, The Surprising Truth About What Motivates Us. And it's, uh, the reason I still talk about this book, and I read it probably, I don't know, 10 to 15 years ago now. But the reason I still talk about it is because it really changed the way I thought about motivation completely. Um, I used to think people, before I learned about intrinsic motivation, I used to think that people were really motivated by extrinsic things like money, recognition, rewards, uh, esteem, things like that. But the real driver that's quality motivation is connecting people with the intrinsic. And you can have both. You can have internal mechanisms that make people want to do things uh, but if you can combine both of them, that's really where the magic happens. As an example, if you've got somebody that likes to play music, they're a musician, that's great. But a lot of musicians don't make a, a lot of money, right? They just, you know, they do what they can. They try to survive. But some musicians make it really big, and they make millions of dollars. 
And so they're combining their love of music, their intrinsic desire to perform with the extrinsic rewards of getting monetary compensation and recognition. And sometimes, you know, they'll get win a Grammy and so they get rewards and things like that. So, uh, or awards. Um, and so, you know, motivation is a very interesting topic and there's a lot of facets to it. We talked about ability, the capacity to which somebody can perform. We talked about perceptions. We talked about performance environments. And motivation is a force within or outside of the body that energizes, direct, and sustains human behavior. So um, we talked about direction and intensity. Direction is the path we take towards a goal, and intensity is how hard we drive towards that goal. So the example I listed on Monday was that everybody in the class is moving towards a degree of some type, whether it be a certificate, associate, bachelor's, whatever it may be. And some of you are half-time students that may be you know, taking a class here or there, not very intense. Some people are taking overloads where they are taking you know, eight classes a semester trying to get there as quickly as possible, very intense. And so there's a couple different types of motivation theories, content and process. And so we're going to talk, just get a little bit deeper into that. And so we talked about needs, um, human condition that becomes energized when people feel deficient in some respect. Uh, so when we're hungry, for example, our need for food has been energized. We talked about how some of the early thoughts on motivation was that people uh, are selfish. And there is this, um, this, is, this type of thinking actually doesn't just take place in psychology. Um, there's this theory in economics called the invisible hand theory. And invisible hand theory says that if people pursue their own selfish interests, that it benefits society because you think about it. So... Why do people do work? Well, people work so they can earn money, exchange that money for goods and services. And those goods and services are things like food, shelter, clothing. And, you know, for the most part, that's, that's you know, there's some other things that we have. But generally speaking, when you get your paycheck, you meet your base needs, you pay your electric bill, you pay your house payment or rent or whatever. And then the money that's left, you're, buying, you're buying gas and food. And that's, it may be a few little things, but that's generally what you go towards. And so by us selfishly seeking those needs to, be, to make sure that they are met, we are benefiting society because we're going to work, we're being productive in order to earn that paycheck. And by us going to work, we're providing goods and services to others. And then when we take that paycheck and we exchange it for other goods and services, we're helping the people that actually produce those goods and services. So it's a very much a cyclical process but we all help each other by being productive and by us seeking out our selfish interests so we can have those basic needs met and some other things like iPads and cell phones and things like that. So, um, A manifest need is whatever need is motivating us at a given time. This is, the press, this is the pressing matter, the thing I've got to take care of immediately, right? That's the manifest need. Instincts are our natural fundamental needs, and they, we do have those uh, that kick in from time to time. I say, um, Henry Murray recognized this problem with uh, condensed the list to a few instinctive and learned needs. Instincts, which Murray called primary needs, include psychological needs like food, water, sex, uh, urination, and so on. And he called the secondary needs learned throughout one's life are basically psychological in nature, like need for achievement, for love, and for affiliation. Um, has anybody ever heard that the prison system um, is reformative. Have you heard that somebody talk about that before? Like 
We, we are here to reform prisoners. Has anybody, have you ever heard anybody talk about stuff like that? Is that being the purpose of prison? Like we want to reform prisoners so when they come in, they get reformed and then they go out and they're not going to do bad things anymore. Has any, you've heard it before. None of, nobody else has heard of anybody talk about it like that? Talk about I, mean, I, I kind of like have a converse. Okay, yeah, go for it. <laughs> I just think like when you got a prison, it kind of like limit your opportunities uh-huh. to like they choices for like a job. Or, right. You know, Sure. Yeah. Well, where I'm going with this is that if your goal, if you if you're in the prison system as an administrator or a policymaker, and your goals are to reform prisoners, it's hard to reform people when their needs are not being met. Okay. If you go back to Maslow's hierarchy that we talked about on Monday, and we'll talk about a little bit more today. If people's primary needs are not met, like if they're not getting quality foods or if they're not able to rest and if they're not feeling safe, yeah, I mean, like if you put me in prison, I'm not going to feel safe ever. You know, like even if I'm in the most like benign prison experience ever, I'm going to be waiting for like somebody to shank me with a toothbrush, you know. So, yeah, I mean, for real, like I'm going to be sketched out, you know. Right. Yeah. It's just like what you it's, it is what you make of it in life. I mean, just like everything else, yeah. you know. If you're there looking for an opportunity to change, it'll be that for you. Yeah, it provides you the opportunity. Right. But you still have to do your part to... Oh, sure. And I don't want to knock prison completely as as not trying to reform, but I think they fall way short. Yeah. And, and part of the reason is because you can't motivate people and uh, when their primary needs are not being met. And so, like, safety is one of those things that I don't care what protocols you have in place, I don't think people feel safe in prison, right? I mean, if, if you do, then... That's not good, you know. Like if you feel, like, oh, I feel safe here, you know. What I mean, so yeah. But you have to stay longer. So yeah, I should stay longer, right? And, yeah. You know, they have to provide, you know, a chance for you to reform, but they also got to make you realize that this is not a place you really want to be. Either. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm not right. Yeah, well, some people think instead of the reformation side to, to reform people, it should be strictly punitive and like you're here, you're being punished. You know, this is this should be a void in your life. You're not going to enjoy any part of this aspect. So yeah, there are guards that that right. So yeah, <laughs> bless you. Yeah, I, I just I would not do well. I think that would yeah. make it harder. Yeah. Part of it's supposed to be there to monitor you, but it's not, you know, you're not in a good situation to begin with. Right. They shouldn't be making it any rougher than it really is, but then again, you know, I kind of see a point where kind of got to drive it. Right. Absolutely. Some people have a bucket list, like, I want to go to Paris. Part of, part of my bucket list or part of my just listed life list is don't get arrested, don't go to prison, right? Like, yeah, don't do anything, like, bad to go to prison. You know, that's because this is, yeah, I would not, that's not for me, you know. So I just, uh, my, my daughter, in fact, we were driving by a wreck, like, within the past two days or so, a lot of cops. 
And she says, man, the cops give me anxiety. I don't know. She said, you know what? She's only like 11 years old. Said, you know, I might have felt that way a little bit when I was younger, but now I don't, the cops don't even, you know, it's not even a thing. I mean, I respect police. They've they got a hard job to do. And I guess because I've gotten older, I've recognized the hard work that, that police officers have to put up, put up and the tasks they have to do each, each day. Uh, but if I told my daughter, if you're living your life right, if you're not breaking the law, if you're doing what you're supposed to do, you should, you should have no worries with police officers because they're there to actually promote public safety and protect you. That's what their, their charge is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'm not going to go over all the Murray's list of needs. They are in the book and I did go over them on, uh, Monday, but there's a long list of those, uh, needs in the book. So, and then I want to, this is new material. So this is kind of getting us back to where we left off, uh, from Monday. And so, I talked about manifest needs already, assumes that human behavior is driven by the desire to satisfy needs. A latent need cannot be inferred from a person's behavior at a given time, yet the person may still possess that need. Latent means uh, lesser or kind of hidden. It's, it's uh, not very present. It's hard to determine. So there are some learned needs. David McClellan and his associates, especially John Atkinson, built on the work of Murray for over 50 years. Murray studied many different needs, but very few in any detail. McClellan's research differs from Murray's in that McClellan studied three needs in depth. The need for achievements, the need for affiliation, and the need for power, often abbreviated in, in, in such terms as the NACH, the NAFF, and the NPAL. I guess they use those in um, academic papers as summations for those. But yeah, achievement, affiliation, and power. The need for achievement is how much, I'm sorry, is how much people are motivated to excel at the tasks they are performing, especially tasks that are difficult. Of the three needs studied by McClellan, achievement has the greatest impact. And so it can be hard sometimes if you're working hard, you feel like you want to achieve. Achievement is not a, there's no shortcut to achievement. It's a, it's a long path. Sometimes you have to work years to achieve. Um, as an example, I mean, graduate school for me was uh, six years, and that's a long path to have zero, like, uh, extrinsic rewards. There's none. It's all intrinsic. Like, you hit these milestones where you finish coursework, and then you finish, like, the first part of your dissertation, and then you, you go through this long track, and then you finally graduate. All those are milestones that you hit, and they make you feel good to, to get past those milestones, but there's no uh, extrinsic rewards. And then you graduate and you're still trying to reach out for achievement. It's a time thing. You have to grind it out. You have to do your time. You have to uh, keep striving for achievement. It, it does take time. And so you need to remind yourself. There's a great uh, saying. Jackie Robinson said this. He said, don't complain, just work harder. I love that saying because it, people complain all the time about you know work. In fact, my kids were complaining last night about something. And I had seen a news story from the day before. So I pulled it up on YouTube, said, girls, I want you to watch this video. It's a three-minute video on YouTube. And it was about these kids in Africa, in Madagascar, the island of Madagascar off the coast of Africa, west coast. And these kids work seven days a week in the mica mines. These mines are 50 feet deep in the ground. So these kids climb in these holes, and they take this, this loose gravel-looking stuff. It's gravel and sand. And they pick it up, and they sift it through these sifters, and then they pick out the mica pieces, they put them in buckets, and they, they haul, haul them back up to the surface. And that mica is a material that's used to produce various things. 
Um, they, they, it's in, you know, components for railway cars, they said. Um, and God, there was another, it's in Samsung products. Uh, and so there was a couple other companies that listed. But these kids work for pennies a day, sometimes no money, and they have very limited food resources. So I showed this to my kids. One of them really caught on to what I was trying to explain. The other one's like, I don't get it. You know, they're like, and she just, you know, she just did not resonate with that message. But yeah, I was trying to explain to her um, that uh, it takes hard work to achieve in life and you need to be grateful for the opportunity. So that need for affiliation, and I got a picture here of McClellan. I found, found that one. There's a couple of pictures I found. So uh, the need for affiliation is the second of McClellan's learned needs. The need for affiliation reflects a desire to establish and maintain warm and friendly relationships with other people. Um, as with achievement, affiliation varies in intensity across individuals. Some people are not people persons. Have you ever tried to warm up somebody, be nice, and they're just they just kind of ignore you or kind of standoffish? Are you standoffish? Oh yeah. 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 Well. <laughs> You have to get to know me. I'm comfortable with all people. Right. So you know, okay. get the good side. But yeah. Some that I don't know. Sure. Well, no, you could. I just, if somebody tried to talk to me. You'd be okay with that. Yeah. 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 Well, no, it's just like, when people take me out and stuff, like, I have very few friends. Um, but that's just because I'm very guarded. Right. Um, and so. When we do go out, the rare occasions that I leave my house, uh, when people come and talk to me or try and talk to us, I literally hide behind the person. <laughs> so if you try to take me out somewhere, if somebody approaches us, I'm going to be hiding. When right. I, I can't stand. I'm, I'm right. Just like, my dad has always like grown up to tell me uh, people are idiots. So <laughs> I've grown up with that. And so... It's kind of like infiltrated into my life. I understand. Yeah. Well, and that's okay. I mean, like, you don't have to be a socialite. I mean, like, I don't mind interacting with you guys and interacting here. But at home, I like to kind of chill and be in my own thing. And if I have to go do something social on my own time, I'm like, oh, you know, I'm not, I'm not a social person, you know. And so, well, part of the problem is I don't know many people that, like, have the same interests as I do. You know, like, I mean... When I, when I get to get, like, as an example, my wife has some friends from high school that live about a mile from our house, and the guy is into golfing, horseback riding, shooting guns, and hunting, that kind of stuff, and sports, and I don't really like any of that stuff, you know, like, I mean, you know, he'll get together, we'll get together, he'll talk about, you know, football, and I'm like, oh, I haven't watched one game this season, you know, and, or shooting an animal and, and skinning it and cleaning it, and I'm like... I've never killed an animal like that, you know. I shot a bird when I was a kid, and I felt terrible, you know. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. So I'm just, I mean, like, I could kill an animal if I was going to eat it, but I'm just not, that's just not, I'm just not there, you know. So I'm just, my wife is not a cook. I would have to kill the thing, drag it out, gut it, clean it, cook it, and everything, and it's just, I'm just not there, you know. I mean, so it doesn't vibe well with my vegetarian lifestyle that I'm hitting now. So, yeah, and so, yeah. So, yeah, I just, uh, yeah, they just, we just don't have similar interests. And there's, that's the true story for my brother-in-law, and I do have a lot of the same interests, but we just don't see each other that often. And, you know, so it's just, you know, I mean, and my dad and I have, my dad and I have probably the most similar interests, I would say. Uh, but my, it's weird. Like, we have a weird, like, 
uh, we get together and we have a great time and talk. Uh, but my wife's always like, when you and your dad get together, it's like you two are the only people in the room, you know, because so, we just, just have this banter that goes back and forth. So I don't know. So, yeah, but you don't have to be like a super social person, but it's good to have some close. I think most people would prefer a few really close friends that have a lot of not just just acquaintances. I mean, am I wrong? Do you think is that the way most people prefer? So, yeah, as long as you got somebody that you can hang out with. So. The third of McClellan's learned needs is the need for power. <laughs> Uh, is the need to control things, especially other people. It reflects a motivation to influence and be responsible for other people. An employee who is often talkative, gives orders, and argues a lot is motivated by the need for power over others. Wow, it's so weird reading that and thinking about my kids because uh, my oldest child has to exert her opinion. Does your oldest kid do this? Has to interject their opinion on anything? Well, most of my, uh, <laughs> my youngest one, because he's, I don't know why, he can't even talk, but he. Right. Sure. Yeah. Right. I don't know why siblings have this power struggle, and I just I don't understand it. I try to like tell them it's like there's no need for any of this mess, but you know. All right. So we're back to Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So any discussion of needs that motivate performance would be incomplete without considering Abraham Maslow. Thousands of managers in the 1960s were exposed to Maslow's theory through the popular writings of Douglas McGregor. Today, many of them still talk about employee motivation in terms of Maslow's theory. And it's not a complete picture, but it's a good like framework to work from. Maslow was a psychologist who, based on his early research with primates, uh, observations of patients, and discussions with employees and organization, theorized that human needs are arranged hierarchically. Oh, this is a hard word. Hierarchically. That's... That's a hierarchy, but hierarchically. Yeah, that's it. That's a kind of a tongue twister. That is, before one type of need can be manifest over our need for social interaction, this is called prepotency, we will always satisfy uh, the need for water before we satisfy our social needs. Um, water needs have prepotency over social needs. Maslow's theory differs from others that precede it because of this hierarchical Prepotency concept. Wow, I got it there at the end. Um, so prepotency is basically uh, I can't go up the ladder or up the hierarchy to higher level needs unless the lower levels are met first. That's the concept of prepotency. And so um, this is a good, like I said, framework to work from. And as managers and as leaders in the future, you may think, I'm just taking this class because it's here to take and I have no aspirations to be a manager or leader. But you don't have to have a formal title of a manager or whatever title you may have in the future to still exude leadership and, uh, and still uh, understand human motivation. This is a valuable asset to you guys regardless of what type of career path you go into. Because if we can understand how people think and what motivates them and what drives them, you'll recognize yourself in everyone. You'll say that this is a human being. They have the same desires that I have for the most part. You know, there's a lot of crossover. You can find common ground with anybody on the planet. We all breathe air. Guess what? We have something in common, you know. So this is a great way to try to understand the way humans uh, kind of think about things and, and understand their motivation. So this is the uh, actual pyramid that we put on the board on Monday. Um, you can see that safety and security um, and this is a little different than the one I drew, 
the, the physiological, I guess safety and security are physiological, make sure that your basic needs are met, the food, shelter, clothing, um, safety. And then the survival, psychological aspects are next. Social, connectiveness to everybody. The ego and esteem, Do I am I recognized and well-regarded in my community? Do people respect me? Um, do people offer me validation? Uh, do I receive some type of rewards and recognition for my efforts? Those are all esteem needs. And then self-actualization. Self-actualization is that thing we mentioned on Monday where it's the combination of all the other levels in alignment. Everything is for that moment in time perfect. There's, there's no problems. Everything is uh, the way it should be. And I feel very fulfilled. I feel a Zen moment. You know, like, I guess a, a good uh, analogy would be that walking outside on like early fall when it's, it's not hot anymore. It's like 73 degrees outside. It's sunny, but it's cool and crisp. You know what I'm saying? And you're not hungry. I mean, you're totally satisfied. You feel rested. Everything's right where you're not stressed out about nothing. You feel just good. It's a good moment, good day, sunny. You know, that's the analogy of what actualization is. Just this great moment in time, you know. Has anybody had a moment of actualization where things were just feeling amazing? Yeah. Another example is... Like, you just achieved something amazing. Like, you've just gone through and, gr- and like, grinded it out. Like, a good actualization moment is walking across the stage at graduation. If you don't feel actualized at that moment, something's wrong. You know, like, you should feel this, this just awesome zen moment. It's like, wow, here I am. I've arrived. I've made it. So what, was, what example do you have, if any? You said you've had that moment. I don't know if you've got something... Graduation's one of those moments. What are you crying about? I don't know. Just because of the fact that I actually graduated. Yeah. I know times like you know I was just like oh I don't want to do this. Is that third? Found myself right. lost every point time. But you know I toughened it up and I graduated. Then seeing like my family. Seeing my mom cry. Yeah. I'm very emotional with it. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like right. So seeing my mama cry and stuff, then it just made me cry. Oh, yeah, I understand. Yeah, yeah. And then you could cry about the eyelash thing, right? So, yeah, so, yeah. I got you. Yeah. But you felt in that moment kind of complete, right? Like right. this is a, like this like is a perfect moment, right? Yeah. yeah. There's, there's, these, there's these milestones in life or high points like your wedding day or the day your kid's born and you know that they're safe. Yeah. Day your kid's born and you got the baby and the baby's safe. Everything's okay. That's a pretty surreal moment. You're like, you're just, everything else in the universe shuts down except for that, that time and place. It's just, this is pretty awesome, man. I mean, yeah, very actualization, like hits you. And then you lose that after just a few minutes because you realize how exhausted you are, even, I didn't, I didn't go through the labor and delivery, but I'm standing there the whole time and like just emotionally exhausted, you know, and just like, oh my God. I was so tired after the first kid was born. They brought in a cot. And I'm laying there snoring in the, the, the room with my wife. And she is so tired and exhausted, too. She wakes me up crying and says, Ryan, you're snoring. Please stop. <laughs> I'm like, oh, God. Because I snore if I'm really exhausted like that, you know, so I'll just pass out. And so, yeah, she was not actualized at that moment. So, yeah. All right. So this is uh, 
obviously a picture of Maslow. So questions about anything we've talked about so far? Maslow. What is it called whenever women, um, I guess like afterwards they have Postpartum depression? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a weird, it's a, it's a real thing, yeah. I think my mom yeah. had that before. Yeah. She would just wake up and just start crying. Like, what is wrong with you? Yeah, it's a real thing. Right. It's uh, basically, not to go into the, the, the full like, details of the, the, the anatomy and physiology of it, but uh, basically your, your hormones are different in your body when you're carrying a, a fetus. And then after you deliver the baby, your hormones take a shift and that dramatic shift is wrecks your, you know, wrecks your whole equilibrium. And so, yeah, and so you do go through some crazy hormone. I think so, yeah. I mean, but it wasn't so like, I don't think it was as bad as some other women that I've, I've, I've heard about it being. But I think it's very, very much uh, situational. And just like motivation is individualized, those types of experiences are also individualized. It helps if you've got somebody that's very supportive. Um, but yeah, if you, if you're having to go through it and do it either alone or with not a lot of support, it exacerbates the the issue. And so you end up just having a lot of stress and anxiety and, and crying and that kind of stuff. So, but if you've got a supportive family that will take the baby and give you time to rest and recover too, yeah, that helps a lot. So yeah, I don't, I don't remember my wife going through a lot of that, you know, really severely. So yeah, but a little bit is normal. So Oh, your your wife had some issues, oh, yeah. yeah. It was worse than the actual pregnancy, actually. Like, really? The first two, they were like, it was cool, kind of sort of, but this last one, I don't know what happened. It was just like she, I don't know. <laughs> she went yeah. through a little situation. The postpartum depression was. Yeah, was it multiple months? Like months and months and months? It was like maybe two months. Yeah. I don't know why. It was... Yeah. But another factor could be the place and time. <laughs> Remember, like, we talked about context. And so, like, this was her third child. Yeah. And so, like, you know, she's a little, little different, different person than from the first child, you know. Yeah. So, like, I mean, you know, like, really, like, she could just be reflecting on her her place and time and where she's at in her life and all that kind of stuff. And, I mean, like, my, our third kid was a challenge because, um, well, he was, he was a big baby. He was, like, nine pounds when he was born. So, yeah, and there was a... Well, there was a little difficulty in the pregnancy toward the very end, and uh, she had just like just a very large belly, and they had to go in and do a C-section. And uh, but he had to spend a couple weeks in the NICU just for his little breathing issues, and uh, he he did okay though. But um, yeah, it's just I don't know the, those those uh, it's it's very individualized what we go through with uh, that experience, and so yeah. It amazes me how Stuff like that. Women are always like the real emotional ones. It's like really scaring them. The dads are just like. Uh, it's it's a case by case because I'm a very I, emotional person. So I mean, yeah, yeah. So I mean, like. like my dad. I've never seen my dad cry. <laughs> well, it's weird because you know my dad's not a crier, but I can cry. You know, and I will cry, but I don't cry like all the time. But if I see something emotional. Like, you know, a movie will, will, can get to me, you know, like when Jenny died in Forrest Gump, oh my God, Jenny, I love you, you know, so, you know, that kind of stuff, you know, like a, a movie can, can can hit me, you know. My dad's not a very emotional person. And one thing that I realized, there's this thing called emotional intelligence. Have you heard that term before? And not everybody has the same level of emotional intelligence or understands emotions the way you do. And 
as an example, I, I like a variety of different like music and I like a variety of different books and movies. And I'll watch a movie that has a very strong emotional impact with me. Maybe not makes me cross sad, but just, just it hits me in a very emotional way. And I'll try to show this movie to a friend or family member and say, oh my God, you got to watch this movie. It's so good. And they'll watch it and they're like, oh, you know, it's just okay, whatever, you know. And I'm like, are you nuts? It was so good. What are you talking about? They just didn't, they just don't get it the same way I get it. They don't connect with it the way I do, right. One example, any Pink Floyd fans in the room? You like Pink Floyd? You like Pink Floyd? You like Pink Floyd? Yeah. So, yeah. I, I like Pink Floyd. I've, lo- I've loved him for a long time now. But the music of Pink Floyd doesn't connect with my wife at all. She hates it. She's like, oh, my God. And I'm like, you know you don't get it. You don't understand the message of the album, what they're trying to <laughs> say. I mean, like, if you if you listen to the, the Wall album, for example, it's a it's very autobiographical and it's very it's a history well it's that but it's very emotional it's 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 about human suffering it's about people suffering through love and and trials and tribulations and it's it's very emotional album and at the just to give you an insight into this at the very end of the album um the main character has basically walled himself out against the world he's he's blocked himself off from being emotional with anybody and the they're saying tear down the wall you know don't don't let yourself be you know be blocked away forever and the wall is torn down at the end of the album and they allow themselves to love again and to be exposed to to others and so it's very profound very poetic but but most people don't you know connect with that album the same way i do you know so that's kind of like in um like have you seen vampire diaries of the original i've not seen it but my family my wife and daughters like it so Special like power they can turn off their um, they yeah. can turn off like their emotions and stuff. Yeah. So like when traumatic yeah. things happen, yeah. their humanity switch. So when tragic things happen, like they don't have no kind of affection. Right. Like, well, it's what it is. I think. Uh, I mean, like I said, emotional intelligence is a, is a thing, and some people have various degrees of it, and some people are more emotional than others. But there's a reason why we have emotions, and uh, I think it's an important, powerful part of the human existence. Because emotions connect us to experiences. And so, like, if I go, there's, there's, a, there's a thing that just popped in my head. I was watching on uh, social media recently, and somebody went to Switzerland, and they walked outside their hotel room or their, their loft or whatever they were staying, and it was just this beautiful scene of all these mountains and rolling hills of lush green. And I said, man, I mean, I would love to be there. And it would have an emotional impact on me. I would feel so, like, in awe of this beautiful place. And so, yeah, I think emotions connect us to life. And it gives us a more rich experience in life. So, But like you said, you know, dad doesn't cry. I mean, that's not everybody goes through the same thing. So um, let me jump into the last uh, person for today to talk about, which is Clayton Altford. Clayton Alford observed that very few attempts have been made to test Maslow's full theory. Further, the evidence accumulated provided only partial support. So I mentioned that Maslow's only a piece of the puzzle. Uh, during the process of refining and extending Maslow's site theory, Alford provided another need-based theory and somewhat more useful perspective on motivation. Alford's ERG theory compresses Maslow's five needs categories into three, existence, relatedness, and growth. In addition, ERG theory details the dynamics 
of an individual's movement between the need categories in a somewhat more detailed fashion than typically characterize uh, interpretation of Maslow's work. So these ERG or existence, relatedness, and growth. Existence are things dealing with psychological and material safety needs, which is very similar to what Maslow had put, put forth. And that gives a lot of strength to Maslow's original theory that, uh, that Alford also kind of agrees with that. Relatedness are these social esteem and interpersonal safety needs. So social connectedness, also what uh, Maslow put forth. And then growth needs, internal self-esteem needs and self-actualization needs. So it's really not that different from the hierarchy, just a little different slant on it. Um, it re- I mean, I'm not knocking Alford. I'm, I'm sure he's done a lot of work in this field. But, I mean, really, he just rewrote the record, right? I mean, so, because, uh, I mean, the, the, the concept that he's putting forth is very similar. Uh, and this is Alford, but these existence opportunities are like, Heat, lighting, base salary, insurance, retirement, air conditioning, restrooms, cafeteria, job security, health programs, clean air, drinking water, safe conditions, no layoffs, and time off. These are existential opportunities that exist in the workplace. We want to make sure that we have these things so people feel secure in their existence at work. Related opportunities are friendships that are formed, interpersonal security, athletic teams, social recognition, quality supervision, work teams, social events, and merit pay. And then these growth opportunities are challenging jobs, creativity, organizational advancements, responsibility, autonomy, interesting work, achievement, and participation. So these are, this is a really value added for the ERG theory because this takes Maslow's work and actually qualifies these opportunities as to what you could do in the workplace to help people feel this existence, relatedness, and growth uh, needs that they need to meet, they, they seek out to meet. And so really good information on that aspect. Questions about, any, so we talked about McClellan today. We talked about, and McClellan said what? Anybody remember already? I'll give you a hint. So he had achievements, affiliation, and power. Achievement, affiliation, and power. Those are the needs. And then we talked about Maslow, the idea of prepotency. Prepotency is this idea that if we, uh, we keep it reverse to the lowest level, the needs do. So we can't meet our need for safety if we're hungry, right? We've got to resolve that first. And then and I, the example I gave on Monday was that they provide lunches and breakfast, breakfast food for all the kids in my county because if, they, if they're not able, if they're hungry, they're not able to achieve academically. So, um, so then lastly was this Clayton Alford, and he had this ERG theory, which deals with existence, relatedness, and growth. Okay? Any questions at all? All right, that'll take a time out for today. We will wrap up Chapter 14 on Friday. And until then, if you guys have any questions, please send me an email, and I'll talk to you guys soon. Thanks, guys. Thank you.